this is Sarah Gotting. And this is Russell Klum. Welcome to Church of the City Teaching Podcast. Wow. It is good to see you. Feels like we've been forever since we've been in the same place at the same time doing this. So, like Brianna said, welcome to a new year, a new decade. A new place, like everything feels like it has changed since we were together the last time. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Russell. I am one of the pastors here, Church of the City. Um, and this is day one uh, at Lucky Lab. So welcome to it. Uh, welcome to new space. Like Sarah said, um, as we kind of put our feet down here for a minute as a church community, man, whatever you're thinking whatever you're hoping for, uh, whatever your expectations are, whatever your experience is, man, we really want that to be shared. Um, And we don't have the most clear pathway to share that um, as of yet, besides white cards that you can write communication things on, beyond conversation. Um, Really genuinely, um, it makes the most sense in my mind that as we just kind of figure out how to be ourselves, this community, in this kind of place, Um, man, I really appreciate conversation among each other, um, across the table to those of us who hold a few of the leadership cards as we try to serve the church community. So whatever you're thinking, whatever you have ideas about, please don't be shy, um, engage, contribute, be a part of it. I was thinking about what it's like to, to move as a human being. And, and personally, I don't know what your feelings are yet. Um, Some of you have shared your emotional response to changing venues as a church and some of you are seriously disturbed by the concept of a church not owning its own building. Some of you have no problem whatsoever, and most of you land somewhere between the two ends of the spectrum. But for me, moving places is a bit um, unnerving. It always has been. My wife and I, when we moved to Portland, um, we chased cheap rent for five years, and we moved um, four times in five years, different apartments. Until we, our fifth place, we, we were fortunate enough to be able to purchase a home here. And every time we moved, um, it was always a gamble, right? As you, as you make the, the leap somewhere new, you know what you don't like about your last place, um, and you've become accustomed to it, and you can live with it, whether it's the landlord who's a jerk, or whether um, the pipes don't work the right way, or functionally something doesn't work with your furniture, whatever it is, you know it. And going somewhere new um, typically goes for me one of two ways. Either I'm extremely optimistic and believe that it's going to be perfect, or I'm confident it's not going to work at all. And that's just like me, bipolar, like it's just one or the other. I don't really have anything in between the two. Moving here and using this space for me has been one of those things where I have been extremely optimistic. But I think for the first time, I'm keenly aware it is going to be very imperfect. Nothing about any space that we as a church that gathers in the heart of the city is going to be perfect. Uh, There is no perfect answer to the way we gather. What is good is that we are a community of people sharing the same space at the same time gathered around Jesus. And that that for us as as a core identity of what we are continues, regardless of what roof is over our head, what street we happen to open a door to, and what it takes to commute to this kind of space. My wife and I, we we rented this condo for a while. I was sharing this with Abby and uh, Carter uh, before church this morning. And um, it, was, it was honestly one of those situations where I was completely optimistic that it was going to be perfect. It was a condo down by the Willamette River across from Moda Center. Um, it was right on the river, beautiful. And we got a killer deal on it. Like everything else was renting. 
a few hundred dollars more than what we got this place for. So we were thrilled getting this place. We went and looked at it. It's like all redone, um, really new uh, appliances, all the stuff. It's nicer than anything we lived in since we moved to Portland. Like we're winning. Like we found the gem. We went back another time to sign the lease. We were there with the, the leasing agent and we're signing the lease and we hand it in and we leave. A couple days later, we move our stuff back and we had our good friend Chris with us and it was the three of us, my wife and Chris and myself. And we'd, I think we'd gotten a pizza and we'd, like, we're going to eat before we start moving boxes upstairs to the new place and we're sitting in the front room. Nothing's in there. When for the first time since we visited, a train went by. Not 50 yards from the front door of our condo is the only crossing in downtown Portland where trains are required to use their horn every single time they cross that crossing of NATO Parkway. And no one told us. The leasing agent was with us twice and never mentioned, hey, by the way, just for your consideration, there is a train. You might want to, you know, just take that into consideration as you decide. We had a toddler at the time, a two-year-old, and we were pregnant with our second. And our, our question, our mind was like, what do we do? We signed a 12-month lease for this place. And what you do is you do what you always do. You adapt. You make it work. Um, our kids were never bothered by the train. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Um, people who came over were seriously disturbed by the train. They'd go over dinner, and they're, like, freaking out about it. And our kids slept through the night just fine. The point of my story is this. Things aren't going to be perfect here. That's just, that's just a given. The way we use the space, the way our kids use the space, we're going to have to grow into it. And we're going to make decisions as a community whether or not this is good enough for us, whether it, it meets all the, the basic thresholds of what we want, who we want to be, and how we want to do it. Here's, here's the beginning. I look at this, the gift of Lucky Lab, uh, the gift of us having space in a very difficult city to find space to gather in. I look at this as our opportunity. We are a church that is uniquely postured in the city to be a church that reaches people that no one else does. It's not because we're better than other churches. It simply is we're unique. And we have the potential, and you are a result of this potential, each and every one of you. We have the potential of being the kind of community that embraces and loves people right now who have issues with the church, who have an affront with the church, who have baggage when it comes to church. And yeah, we meet in a bar, and that's intimidating. There's an issue. Like We, we have to deal with the, the pieces of that that come with it, the fact that, that we do have part, people in our community who are in recovery. And we want people who are in recovery to be part of our church. So how do we do that well? How do we do that safely? Those are all things we're figuring out together. But some total. What we have at this moment is the opportunity to be church of the city, to be this community, to be this family that gathers here. So welcome. Welcome this morning to what is for now home for us. I want to do this. I want to do what we've done um, on a regular basis I want us to take a minute to be mindful, to meditate, to silence ourselves, whatever you need to do to find center again. There are a lot of things pulling for our attention, a lot of things drawing um, our minds and hearts in different directions, and many of those things are very good things. But this morning as we center around Jesus, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to quiet, to slow, to look inward for a minute, a full 60 seconds, simply so that we can orient ourselves again to Jesus, his teachings, his ways, and his hope. This is new for you. Um, thank you for participating. 
Um, a minute will feel like a very long time, um, but genuinely, I'm just asking you to lean in for a second to do your best to pray, to be thoughtful, to be mindful, whatever you need for 60 seconds. So let's do that at the end of which I'll bring us back together. God, as we slow for just a moment to think, to ponder, to quiet, whatever mechanism that we embrace in the last 60 seconds that would pull us back to you, God, I pray that you would come and find us in the middle of it all. God, I pray that you would come and find each individual in this room. I pray that you come and find us as a community of people, as a family, as friends, God, I pray that in in the shared moments we have, that we would see you, more of you, pieces of you, the pieces we need, the pieces that are, are missing of our view of what you hope for, what you want, what you want for us and what you want from us. God, I pray in these moments that as we look toward toward Jesus and and what he's done and who he is, I pray that God, it would shape us. My hope is that as we are shaped by you, that it would make a difference not in just our well-being, but, God, in the way that we relate to the world around us, the way we treat people, the way, the way we love, the way we think, the way we act. And because of it, God, I pray that people would know that they're deeply loved as human beings by you and by us. And we pray in your name. Amen. The right thing at the wrong time is still the wrong thing. The right thing at the wrong time is still the wrong thing. We have a bit of a timing issue as people at times. Um, For instance, it wasn't long ago um, that I happened to be part of a funeral um, for a family that I I wasn't very acquainted with, um, but I had the opportunity to be a part of their grieving process, and they'd asked me to to guide them through their funeral uh, for this person that they had lost. It was an older gentleman, and there were grown adult children. Now, I get it. There is a necessary part of the puzzle to solve the, the estate, to settle the estate, and make sure that everything is executed properly and legally and amicably. The funeral is not the right place for that conversation. The right thing, the wrong time, is still the wrong thing. Someone that you know has had a large zit on their nose before. And there's been times when uh, you have been tempted to notify them of this particular issue. And it might even be a loving act to do so, um, because there can be some remedies of making the situation a bit better. While they're among their friends or in public, probably not the best time to do so. The right thing, the wrong time, is still the wrong thing. See, a lot of times our timing is off. Well-intended as people, we, we try to communicate what's good or what's necessary or what we, what we want out of the world, and that's great. But doing so at the wrong time oftentimes results in the results, it, it results in results that we don't want. It brings about the kind of conflict or pain that we could have easily avoided had we just simply done what we needed to do 
at the right time. This is really important when it comes to faith, when it comes to our relationship with, with Jesus, for instance. Many Christians um, over the years, not just our generation of living generation of people, but many Christians over a long time have had extremely poor timing when it comes to communicating their faith. And we, we can look at that. We, we can look at our own experiences at times when we thought it was very important to correct someone's view of God immediately when they articulate maybe a, an errant idea about who God is, and the result wasn't positive. I don't know if you've ever had that before, but if you try to correct your friends about their theology when they're not interested in you correcting them about their theology, maybe because they aren't thinking necessarily theologically or they're not of faith or whatever it is, rarely does it go well. See, we have a knee-jerk reaction in many cases for us to simply say, here's everything I know to be true about God, and you also must think the way that I do. When in fact, timing is everything. Understanding that people take time to grow in their ideas, to be open to new ideas, to receive you, to trust you enough to have a conversation with you, timing is crucial. I was in a car yesterday on a road trip with a few friends, um, well, one friend and two of his friends. And invariably, it almost always comes up at some point that I'm a pastor, because my friend likes to rat me out to his friends about me being a pastor. And so I didn't even have a chance to like get in front of this train before I got hit by it. And I was in the front seat. My good friend is in the seat next to me driving. And two people in the back that we left earlier in the morning, and I hadn't even really seen their faces yet. I hear come from the back seat from this woman. So I hear you're a pastor. Deep breath. Yeah, I am. Follow-up question from her. So what do you do, like, Monday through Saturday? (laughs) Yeah, you laugh, but many of you ask me the same question. (laughs) And I told her that. I told her, like, I get that question a lot. And and here's the thing. Many times, and you might feel I'm not living up to who I am in faith, I dodge this topic for significant amounts of time with people because I think relationships need to be strong enough to carry the weight of that kind of conversation. I had no choice in this particular situation. So I, I offered a few off-ramps for her. I'm like, yeah, I'm a pastor, and here's kind of what I do. I get that question a lot. And how about them bears? Like, I, I'm trying to like, get away from the conversation as, good, as well as I can. And she kept leaning into it. And what I found is, rarely this is the case, but yesterday I was in a conversation where the timing was right. And for about an hour, driving south, on I-5 early in the morning, I unpacked who we are as a church community with her and for her. And I wasn't necessarily kind about who we are. I shared a lot of our blemishes, a lot of our bruises, a lot of our hiccups, a lot of things that aren't right about who we are. I didn't name names, so you're safe. (laughs) After about an hour of conversation, she said to me, If I had grown up in that kind of church, I think I'd still be a Christian today. Timing is everything. See, when Jesus is inhabiting earth, when God puts flesh and bones on and participates in the human story, timing is crucial. That could have happened so much sooner. And for many people, over many years, they thought it should have happened sooner. 
that God should have arrived and shown up and resolved things sooner. But beyond just timing, substance matters. See, what many people wanted in the Christ, in the Messiah, was a conquering hero to resolve all the issues that a few people had, the Hebrew people. As they've been conquered and they've been taken over, they wanted a Messiah to take them to the top of the pecking order. But not only is timing imperative, but the substance, what's there when we say, when we talk, what we do. And when Messiah shows up, when, when Christ shows up, when Jesus arrives on earth in flesh and bones, the kind of kingdom that was brought with him was not a conquering kingdom. It was not a kingdom that harmed people simply because they weren't high enough in the pecking order. It wasn't a kind of kingdom that made people excluded simply because they had the wrong nationality or the wrong gender or the wrong amount of money. It was a kind of kingdom that at its substance level said, you who are broken, you who are a mess, Come be a part. Now this morning, what we're going to do, this is quite different, and I thought for our first time together that this makes sense for us a little bit because we can do extraordinary things on a first time and never have to do it again if it doesn't work. That is my sermon for us, right there. And now I want to read you two pieces of scripture out of Luke. And simply, I want to point at the way Jesus functions. See, what we see in the life of Jesus, what we see in the coming of the king, is the timing of a kind of kingdom that was radical, wild, and unexpected. The kind of kingdom that looked at those at the margins and said, you matter. The kind of kingdom that engaged people in their real pain, of their real story, in their real life. For us, we still struggle at this point. So let me read you a story of the book of Luke. It'll be on the screen behind me. But I want you to hear what Jesus does at the very beginning of his public ministry. Now, if you recall, he's just gotten kicked out of his hometown because he's not the right kind of hero for them. They want a hometown boy who's going to make them famous. And he rejects that and says, I'm not here just for you. And they try to murder him right there on the spot by throwing him off of a hill. He leaves there. And this is what happens. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee. Now, Capernaum's not big. It's a bit bigger than Nazareth. I'll give you that. But it's about 600 people. It's a small, small place. And on the Sabbath, so on Saturday, on the holy day, on the day he's supposed to be resting and not doing any work, he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are. With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits, 
and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Now, I don't know what your relationship is or thoughts are on demon possession. I'm not really going to address that today. Um, I'll address that elsewhere, and we'll address it again in the storyline of Luke. But I simply want to point at one thing here. That Jesus, as he begins to engage the communities around him, looks towards those who are in the most pain and engages them. Think about the moment we're in right now. If someone were to walk in or among us to stand up and to have an impure spirit and to act the way this individual acted, we'd probably ask our security guard, which we have one, by the way. You don't know who he is, but he's here. Um, I I can tell you who he is. It's not a big deal. It's no point. We, We could ask our security to escort that person out. That's what we would do. Because we're uncomfortable when someone disrupts our social order, right? When someone gets in the way of what we expect or what's comfortable for us, we ask them to leave. And instead, Jesus engages. And here's what's crucial here. That individual who's the most disruptive, that individual knows exactly who Jesus is. And Jesus says to him, be quiet. Now hold on that for a second. Story number two. Pick up the text in verse 38. So Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now, this is the same Simon who becomes a disciple. Um, his name is also Peter. You've probably heard that name more regularly. He goes to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of illness And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And they kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, two stories here. Two stories that, if you're familiar with the storyline of Jesus, they, they kind of sound normative, right? Like, here is Jesus engaging someone who's got demon possession, and he solves that. And then he goes and heals a woman, and the news kind of gets out. And that night, a bunch of people show up, and they want their loved ones healed also. This, this sounds very typical of the storyline of Jesus. Let me just point out the fact that this is anything but typical. To have anyone with the power and capacity to change these kinds of things about other people's story is extraordinary. These are miraculous, okay? So that's foundational. But then what happens here? I love that sound. Well, it was sunny in here a minute ago, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. This is what it's going to be like most of the time, I think. Then, as Jesus engages that person, those people, and they want their loved ones healed, what Jesus does is he engages all of these needs. And those who know who he is and what he is, surprisingly, he tells them to be quiet about it. Now, this point has always been confusing to me. But I think that this is the point of these two pieces of Scripture. Yes, Jesus is a miracle worker. Yes, people are amazed by him. 
Yes, they start murmuring among one another how amazing he is, and that news gets out and people start bringing their loved ones to come and see him so that he can do something for them. But at two intervals here, and I would say at every interval we can assume outside of the room of these two pieces of scripture, at this point in the storyline of Jesus, at every interval where someone says, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the chosen one of God, he says, be quiet. Surprisingly, if you look to the book of Luke, it isn't until the 7th and 8th chapter, and we're in chapter 4 right now, where we see Jesus welcome people naming him as Messiah. At this particular point, what the king of the universe is doing as he arrives on flesh and bones on earth is he's keeping things tamped down. Yes, he's doing the work of the king. Yes, he's doing the work of the kingdom. But what he's not doing is getting famous. Yes, the news is spreading. It's getting out there. People are coming back. But he says to them, don't tell people. And in essence, he's saying, because that's not the kingdom. And right after that, he says, I can't stay here because I have to go do the work of the kingdom. So here's my question. If Jesus is getting famous, if the news about Jesus healing people, if his title as Messiah is not the work of the kingdom, then what is? If Jesus here is saying, what you're telling me, that I'm Messiah, be quiet about that, is not the work of the kingdom, then what is? And I think what we see here in Jesus, in this moment, in these stories, is extremely important for the way that we live the way of Jesus here and now. Many of us were told, I would say, the false narrative of what it means to be Christian that aligns more with the people who are engaging with Jesus in these stories. It's your responsibility And if you don't, there are consequences, by the way. It's your responsibility to be as loud and proud as humanly possible about your Christianity. That you are to wear the boldest and brightest Jesus Fish t-shirts. That you are on Facebook to make sure that all of your Facebook friends and followers know that you are a Christian and that they are wrong if they are not. That even we feel a bit of guilt if we are not out publicly somewhere, maybe not with a picket sign, but maybe with a track or two downtown, notifying the world that we are Christian. Jesus didn't do that. In fact, Jesus did something that feels very counterintuitive to that narrative, which is why I call it a false narrative. Is it appropriate for us to engage and share our faith with other people without question? But let me give you pause. Timing is everything. The right thing at the wrong time is still the wrong thing, even when it's Jesus. Jesus knew that so thoroughly that he's willing to tell people, don't tell them who I am right now. I think the reason is because they would have got it wrong. They would have told a story about Jesus that was inaccurate. They would have portrayed him as something that he wasn't. 
because they weren't ready to understand what kind of Messiah he was. He's a miracle worker. He's a genie in a bottle. He can heal all your wounds. Let's come and give him money and make him famous and tell our friends about it, and that's going to be our Messiah. It's not who Jesus was, nor is it what he came to do and be. When we see Jesus leave these towns, and at the very end of the second story, when he says, I can't stay here because I must go proclaim the kingdom elsewhere, we see the substance of the kingdom of Jesus. We see it in the people he engages in the synagogue, the woman he heals that night, and the people who come with their loved ones who are broken. The substance of the kingdom of Jesus. The epicenter of the kingdom of Jesus is focused on the outsiders, on those on the margins, on those who have not yet formed their narrative of Jesus being king. And he tells those who might get it wrong, don't tell anyone yet. Hold on to that for a minute. Watch me a little bit longer. Listen to me a little bit longer as your ideas, as your view is formed. It's striking to me that it takes almost eight chapters in Luke's narrative before Jesus begins to tell others who he is. Yeah, he tells them in part. Yeah, he has these small conversations. But in the big global kind of picture of things, he holds it back for a long time. I think when we think about who we are individually as Christians, who we are as a community of people wrapped up in similar faith around Jesus, we need to be extremely careful at this point. The risk is, as we've been told, if you've been part of this narrative with the knee-jerk reaction to go share your faith, we've been told, and accurately so, there are consequences if we get this wrong. We will harm people. We will hurt people. We will push people away from Jesus if we get this wrong. Jesus here exemplifies the kind of patience and humility that is at the core of the kingdom itself. To wait, to reveal who he is, to do it in the kind of way where people have to ask the questions and not have all the answers at the front end. Who is this man and what kind of kingdom is he bringing? See, I think what Jesus did know would happen from these two stories is that people would share about him. Obviously. You don't keep that to yourself. But I think what he gives them is the gift of not having all the answers and frees them from the responsibility of having to have all the answers for other people. He's willing to send them and let them go among their friends, among their community, among their people with a bit of confusion, with a lack of clarity, with a few questions. So as they converse with other people, it goes more like, I wonder who he is, and I wonder what he's doing. I wonder if he is the Messiah. I wonder what that would be like if he was. And let me just say that at the heart of the kingdom, it is that posture that Jesus embodies and asks from us. 
So I don't know about you. As you think about who you are as a Christian, as you think about your participation in a church community like this one, but oftentimes I feel the need to answer everyone's questions completely. When it comes to who I am as a Christian, when it comes to who I am as a pastor, when it comes to what kind of church we're a part of, when it comes to Jesus. Let me just free you from that obligation. I think what we see in this piece of scripture is that we don't have to have all the answers, and Jesus knew it. And the gift he gives to his community around him as they try to wrestle with understanding who he is and what he is, he tells them, just be quiet a bit longer. Take me in a little bit longer. Wrestle with understanding who I am a little bit longer. One of the reasons we don't like that very much is because it lacks control. We don't get to control the conversation we don't get to control other people's decisions. We don't get to micromanage their journey of faith. We don't get to strong arm them into becoming a Christian or coming to our church. But what it does is it extends a huge amount of dignity to other people to allow them to wrestle with the very same thing you've been wrestling with for a long time, the substance of the kingdom of Jesus. Who is this man and what is he doing? So as we put our feet down, as we put our feet down here in this space, as we share air here, I think about the fact that as a community of people, we are uniquely postured to engage with, to include people who otherwise would never be a part of a church community. And let me just ask you, let me just implore you, let me just challenge you to follow the way of Jesus as we engage those around us. To put down your know-it-all perspective and attitude. To put away all of your answers. To resist the knee-jerk re reaction of making sure there's no heresy in the minds of anybody around you. And to pick up the way of humility the way of ambiguity, the way of not having all the answers, and yet the way of being deeply connected to Jesus himself. Invite people. Invite people to faith. Invite people to our church community. Invite people into relationship with you. But do it well. Do it humbly. Do it the way we see Jesus doing it. I love who we are. I loved yesterday getting, from my view, to brag about you and us to this woman who's clearly a skeptic. I loved getting to share our story full of all of its dings and brokenness and imperfections. And in the midst of it, what I found is I found something that felt a bit more like what I see in these two pieces of scripture. A little bit of humility, a little bit of good timing, and a lot of grace. I want to pray for you. Specifically today, what I want to pray is I want to pray a blessing over you. 
as we enter a new year, as we enter a new decade, as we enter a new time in our storyline as a church, I simply want to pray that we would resolve ourselves, that we would find ourselves in step with Jesus as we love the people around us. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to ask you to stand up. Brandon and Jen are going to come up and lead us in a, in a moment um, as we go forward. Sarah's going to guide the rest of our time together, but a standing posture at times is the right posture for us to pray and ask for God's blessing. So let's, let's pray together. God, as we stand in the same space at the same time, even changing the way our body is oriented to one another, God, our attention is drawn to you, is drawn to the way you did life. Your willingness to, yes, engage those who are at the margins, yes, to step in when possible to resolve pain, but also to be patient with people as they try to make sense of all of it. God, may we be patient with ourselves and with others. God, may we be people who when we look at people outside of our own body, God, may we be people who see humans, not projects, not ideas, not heresy, but people. God, may we be the kind of people who are willing to walk a long way in life alongside of those who are trying to figure out who you are. God, may we ask more questions than make statements. God, may we demonstrate the goodness of what it looks like to receive from you the love and grace that you've given. And may we give it away to people around us with our actions and with our words. God, may we find the courage in the right time, in the right space to speak boldly about who you are and what you are. And God, may we simply acknowledge the fact again of how loved we are and how much you love the people around us. God, we pray this all in your name. Amen.